Good morning. Hello and welcome to our podcast Naturally Curious. I am Monal Mehta and I'm Shreya Shah. We are your hosts for today and our aim is to curate conversations, share ideas and reflections on current global events. As they say, provoking conversations that matter. Joining us today is Dr. Abhishek Sara, an international economist at the World Bank Group in Washington DC. He leads high-level policy advisory and research on FDI, industrial development, job creation, women's economic empowerment, and productivity growth. He currently leads global research and advisory to investigate the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the private sector and remedial public policy support to developing countries. His work uncovers the effects of demand and supply-side shocks triggered by the pandemic on global supply chains, firm liquidity, worker productivity output employment and business performance dr saurabh holds a doctorate from the george washington university where his work investigated the effect of entrepreneurship on economic development and long run effects of migration on source economies abhishek welcome to naturally curious thank you monal and shreya for inviting me to be part of your exciting podcast series i'm happy to share my personal views and analyses with your audience Um, and I'd like the listeners to know that in case of any follow-on questions, I can be reached at my personal email address, which is abhishek.saurav at gmail.com, my first name, dot last name at gmail.com. Um, happy to proceed when you're ready. Uh, thank you, Abhishek. Uh, thank you for being with us today. So let us begin with the first question. Could COVID-19 be the black swan event that finally forces many companies and entire industries to rethink and transform their global supply chain model? China's dominant role as the world's factory means that any major disruption puts global supply chains at risk. Okay. Highlighting this is the fact that more than 200 of the Fortune Global 500 firms have a presence in Wuhan, which is the highly industrialized province in China where the outbreak originated. and which has been the hardest hit companies whose supply chain is re- reliant on tier 1 or tier 2 suppliers in china are likely to experience significant disruption we would li- like to have your views here sir that how can organizations respond to the immediate change right, that's a that's a good question i think it's uh, very relevant on top of people's mind so there is little doubt that the covid-19 pandemics acute impact um on the global economy has surprised most predictors and forecasters within 6 months of facing this raging pandemic the world finds it itself in the deepest recession in more than 8 decades since the second world war the impact is clearly universal with greater than 90% of the world's economies projected to experience simultaneous recessions that is contraction in output in 2020 alone recent world bank estimates suggest that global gdp will contract greater than 5% in 2020 as you rightly point out what originated as a localized shock to chinese production rapidly transformed into disruption of global supply chains this was mainly because of the heavy reliance on producers in china that supply raw intermediate and final goods business globally directly and indirectly the effect has been quite severe on globally connected producers such as multinational corporations who are lead firms in the system of globally distributed production 
which is also known as global value chains. My own research, recent research, finds that about three in four foreign companies, that is multinational corporations, have experienced a fall in supply chain reliability due to COVID-19 in the first quarter of 2020 alone. The likelihood of further disruption and a fall in reliability remains quite high. So the current pandemic has exposed the vulnerability of global supply chains and highlights the risks of relying on the concentration of manufacturing facilities of a single or a small set of countries. The arrangement is neither suitable for reliance and geared towards managing production risks. So on your question directly, how can organizations respond to the immediate change? This is a time of significant shifts for businesses and policymakers alike, because it is linked to the future of global production and of globalization itself. So let me begin by stating that I'm hesitant to agree with any predictions of extreme localization of production because it has no steam in terms of economic rationale. That is, we are not going to expect or we should not expect global producers to come back to their own shores and GVCs being structured permanently or to a, to a, to a significant degree. A more likely scenario is to see an upsurge in domestic production in certain selected sectors, especially those related to immediate needs of food, health, and hygiene. And at the emergence of regional supply chains or regional supply networks to manage risk and to boost visibility of supply networks. For global producers, a series of supply chain adjustments are already underway and expected to intensify over the coming years. Some important ones include, first, increasing the visibility of supply chains and the network of suppliers, including tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers, that is suppliers of suppliers. Second, leveraging digital technologies to manage the complexity of supply chain networks. Third, closer collaboration with suppliers through support and adaptation, that is lead firms taking a more active role in mitigating risks by helping the suppliers. Next, diversification of suppliers, that is both within and across economies to lower the risks related to concentrated production, concentrated suppliers. So this is how I see um, businesses responding in the near term to this significant shift in global production and by extension, global supply chains. That's a good point you make there on global supply chain. One likely impact of China's lockdown and the escalating US-China tensions that has already begun the process of decoupling of the IT industries is that global firms will diversify their supply chains in the future instead of relying only on China. India appears to have emerged as an important component of the Trump administration's plan to rip global supply chains from China. For India to become a supply chain hub, reform on land and labor laws is vital. There are other issues that need to be addressed too. The fragile financial sector, the high cost of compliance, the complex tax structure and contract enforcement. What can the Modi government do to address these issues? I think that's a, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? So, <laughs> no, so I think you have laid out the priorities just right. Um, we know that there has been some momentum towards reforms on land and, and labor laws. In fact, we have recently witnessed 
a series of labor reforms that are being undertaken in certain states in India. Um, let me begin with the financial sector. So in the financial sector, first lending from state banks has been quite limited. And this is attributed to the high share of non-performing loans, number one. Number two, modest deposits coming in. And number three, their longstanding commitments to public sector lending towards specific uh, missions, if I, can, um, if I can say that. On the other hand, in private sector banks, there is a low supply of funds contributing to kind of weak credit markets. So I think this is the crux of the problem that we are looking at in the financial sector. Conditional on investor confidence, businesses do need credit to fuel growth. So this is a major constraint facing businesses, and in particular, small and medium-sized enterprises, which need to grow in India to be able to generate the type of employment effect that we need. There are certain solutions that are evident in the need for reforms in the public banking space. I'm going to focus on those. So the first is public banks in India need to be oriented and aligned with stated objectives and mission. The mixed objectives of profit maximization on one hand, like any other bank in the private sector, and supporting social objectives, such as supporting the agriculture sector or other sectors or certain business groups are often at odds with each other. The mission needs to be revisited and priorities of public sector banking should squarely respond to its stated development objectives. So I think here the idea is that objectives need to um, dictate the role of public sector banking. It should not be all over the place. That's number one. Number two, stronger accountability and institutional governance measures should be placed to optimize the organization for performance. This is an area that has repeatedly been cited in studies as a limitation of public banking in India. So I'm going to end it at that, uh, but this issue is quite important and I think literature is rife with, which again and again finds this as a major constraint for performance. Number three, there are some calls for privatization uh, of some public sector banks. And extending the idea further is to introduce more competition in the banking sector. That is allowing private ownership, particularly foreign ownership could deliver kind of double dividends. That is increasing the number of banks on one hand and also letting market mechanisms dominate the supply of credit. This is what we would expect in an efficient credit system. And finally, to support counter-cyclical lending in times such as now, that is crisis, public banks could benefit from additional capital infusion to improve their balance sheets. So that's what I have to say on um, the financial sector. You've already laid out uh, the other aspects of uh, the business related to the business environment. So more progress is required in the business envi environment front. India's ease of doing business performance has been promising more recently, and it covers some of the aspects you mentioned, compliance costs uh, for businesses from licensing and permits, uh, the paying taxes aspect of doing business and contract enforcement. So clearly more needs to be done over there. In fact, more important reforms are expected if India is to further make its business environment more supportive, friendly and predictable for business, businesses, particularly small and medium sized enterprises. So I think that's, that's what I would suggest as 
top priorities for the current administration in India. Uh, Abhishek, these were some insightful points that you mentioned with respect to required reforms or amendments uh, in India. We have a follow-up question uh, on India itself. So international investors find infrastructure, macroeconomic and social stability, skilled labor and open trade policies very valuable. China fulfills most of the characteristics of a strong state, but it seems that it lacks legitimacy. It fails another key test. It is considered an unreliable host country by most Western and Japanese investors because it is known to use its economic power to pursue strategic goals. It's important to note that India is considered to share values and interests that align closely with those of the Western democracies. It has impressive entrepreneurial talent, a large internal market and thriving private enterprises. Its analytics, financial and management services are considered to be world class. Its only drawback is its inherent suspicion of foreign investors. especially in manufacturing and its protection protectionist trade policy what hard decisions you think the current government should take to attract foreign investments right so very strong um, opinions in that in that in that uh, question so let me let me begin by kind of identifying that the current global scenario presents opportunities for economies with manufacturing scale and production capacity such as india and i see two clear opportunity areas for indian policy makers in the context that you that you outlined the first strategy is to undertake reforms to strengthen foreign direct investment competitiveness so fdi competitiveness to be able to better attract foreign investors this is an area that where there is opportunity and clearly there is interest and the timing is just right so this is an this is important because several development um benefits to host economies the times of crisis it can alleviate the immediate uh, impacts of the crisis countries economic resilience by providing for external capital for financing public debt and continuing to create more and better paid jobs lift people out of poverty and boost productivity growth all priorities of the indian government um, from my recollection it begins with understanding what foreign investors want what are their priorities recent evidence from research that i co-authored finds that for foreign investors the most important decision factors are number 1 political stability number 2 macroeconomic stability and number 3 the quality of the legal and regulatory environment these are all factors within the control and domain of governments that is the administration can affect each of these three priorities to improve the regulatory environment for fti structural reforms are in order that require implementation with surgical precision based on our research these are number 1 streamlining investment approval the whole process it can be further streamlined simplified relaxing foreign investment limits so there are several constraints such as uh, a maximum cap on investments in certain sectors and certain products that has to be relaxed lowering 
price, technology, and product restrictions across sectors, opening up and relaxing restrictions, that is removing caps on foreign equity ownership. Many sectors are liberalizing. We need to do this furthermore. And most importantly, boost investor confidence by reducing investor risk and increasing policy predictability. If you are to attract FDI, that is, if the country is to attract FDI, the country has to up the game, especially in reference to our competitors. Um, I won't name them, but I think it is quite evident. The second strategy is to closely follow shifts in global value chains towards some localization, emergence of regional supply chains, as I mentioned earlier, and to some extent, the relocation of global producers. Sectoral dynamics really matter in this regard. For example, India may seek to identify comparative advantages in emerging sectors, such as healthcare manufacturing, digital services, especially remote, food processing, and logistic services. Let me cite the recent economic survey uh, published by the government of India, which calls for an extension of the Make in, I Make in India thrust uh, to now include and assemble in India for the world aspiration. What this means is that the policy environment has to support specialization or high specialization at large scale in labor intensive activities for products which are called network products. These are defined as a type of production that occurs across global value chains that are led by multinational corporations. This will require a laser-like focus on enabling assembling operations at mammoth scale in network products to generate significant employment opportunities. This is important because India also has multitudes of young, uh, young entrepreneurs and others and workers who are seeking employment opportunities um, uh, in these times and have been for some time. The potential for job creation is anywhere between 40 to 80 million jobs in the next decade or so. But this potential, I think, cannot be realized by an insecure trade and investment policy architecture. That is the framework. This has to go hand in hand with a suitable trade and investment policy package that allows manufacturers, that is both domestic and foreign, to compete in new markets and product categories and does not deter global producers from choosing to locate um, their MNC affiliates in India. Also, I think policymakers must recognize quite rapidly that any protectionist barriers in trade and investment will be misguided and its economic costs will most likely far overshadow its benefits in the near term. One such measure with promise is to liberalize the tariff regime. In the manufacturing sector, this would entail lowering or eliminating tariffs in products that constitute key inputs into export-oriented value-added manufacturing in India. This is quite important to kickstart the manufacturing impetus that is required um, in the economy. In the services sector, policymakers should rec recognize that the major thrust towards digital digitalization uh, and the economic potential for remote service delivery is on the upswing. Removing regulatory and operational barriers to, remote, uh, to remove, um, um, to simplify remote digital service delivery across the globe sitting in India is also in order to realize this potential. So this is how I see 
as strategies for manufacturing, mostly manufacturing, but also certain opportunities and, and green areas in the services sector. These are both sources of competitive advantage for India. Thanks, Abhishek, for highlighting the clear opportunities and the pathway for the current administration. We have a follow-up question on that. What once seemed like a one-off external shock that disrupted global production, such as the 2011 tsunami in Japan and the flooding in Malaysia, are becoming increasingly frequent thanks to climate change and extreme weather events. The pandemic and its disruptions just brought home the value of having a robust, not simply cheap, and diversified supply chain. In the next five years, many suggest that Malaysia, India, Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam are set to enter the top 15 most competitive manufacturing countries. Manufacturing experts see a variety of areas as important for low-cost manufacturing competitiveness. That is, young population, low labor costs, a supportive policy environment, good quality infrastructure, availability of engineers, a minimum level of education for all workers, economic growth, and a large internal consumer market. The different economies all have their distinct advantages and disadvantages. What competitive advantages do you think India should leverage to gain most from the current opportunity to be a glo global low-cost manufacturing base? Right. Um, I like the question very much. Um, it, has, it has a speculative angle to it. In the next five years, um, several of these countries in the, in the Southeast Asian and South Asian neighborhood are projected to be top 15. So I think it's a scenario. I, I, I'm not very sure if um, the scenario is likely to play out. And a lot depends on um, the policy push in these countries. I mean, clearly there is opportunity from relocating, uh, probably realigning global supply chains and the push towards more regional supply chains. But I'm not sure if this is, this is uh, easy to conclude that the countries are going to be top 15. But let us assume that this scenario can play out. And, and it's, a, it's a positive scenario because all of these are developing countries with, with um, uh, a significant need for employment generation. So it's correct that the COVID-19 pandemic and, and, and building on the increase in incidence of natural disasters and adverse weather events have contributed to a major pivot in, in business. This is characterized by a shift from efficiency-driven, low-cost production and offshoring, related offshoring, and towards more flexible and adaptable supply chains that are resilient in times of crises. We also know that consumer preferences are also similarly shaping, and it's, it's only natural that producers will respond to the changing nature of demand. So we have to keep these two broad changes um, underway, which I think is, is, is quite um, closely aligned to the, the, the question at hand. The drivers or factors you identified as key to manufacturing competitiveness does bear out in empirical literature as well. That is the importance of human capital. I think some of the factors that you mentioned, uh, it's commonly referred to as human capital. So I'm going to use that simplified term. So the importance of human capital large size of consumer markets and supportive policy environment are, are considered to be and found to be in empirical literature important to define a location's investment competitiveness. That is, if a location offers these certain advantages, more foreign direct investment uh, is likely to flow to it. Of course, conditional on many other, uh, many other um, factors such as stability, political stability and others, which I outlined earlier. 
So I would like to identify three sources of competitive advantage that India could leverage to gain from this current opportunity as, as, as you identified, to be a global low-cost manufacturing. And let me extend that by saying manufacturing and assembling base. So the first area of opportunity is, is its uh, first source of competitive uh, advantage is its deep manufacturing capacity. So despite the slowdown in manufacturing activity in pre-COVID-19 years, India's manufacturing capacity remains potentially a source of strength. It is clearly ahead of Asian competitors on this front. And this matters quite a bit because export-oriented, value-added manufacturing relies heavily, heavily on raw and intermediate inputs. And a broad, diversified manufacturing base can ensure that over time, local linkages with domestic suppliers becomes a marked additional source of cost advantage in product markets for producers. So with increasing intensity of local supplier connections with lead firms, that is multinational companies, the existing uh, competitive advantage of economies of scale further compounds into uh, a further competitive advantage of having cost advantages because of local supply. Number two, I think, is its industrial and logistics infrastructure. So this is an area where competitive advantage can be rather quickly upscaled in, 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 in India and the area of industrial and logistics infrastructure. This includes the system of economic zones, industrial parks, industrial estates that span the length and breadth of the country. Of course, naturally, they are concentrated in more industrialized states, but I think there is a push and momentum towards um, expanding coverage even to remote areas such as the northeast of the country uh, and the northwest where industrial activity has traditionally fallen behind its competitor or, or should I say uh, companion states. So the infrastructure has attracted, uh, this industrial infrastructure has attracted voluminous public investments over the years and created industrial infrastructure that is purpose-built for support to manufacturing units alone. However, what we have found, and this is, this is a paper, paper I wrote a um, couple of years ago for the, for the then World Development Report and Global Value Chains as a background note, is its performance has been underwhelming due to institutional and governance arrangements. That is how they are managed. Um, the reporting lines and, and, and the sharing of responsibilities and accountabilities between public sector entities. But we also know that some more recent industrial infrastructure that have come up, that have been developed under uh, a public-private partnership framework have performed markedly better. So compared to those run by the public sector, we see that those that have come up under collaboration between the public and the private sector are, are, are doing much better. They are better, more occupied. Uh, they have a higher concentration of manufacturing activity. They have a higher intensity of export coming out of, of that production. So it's a clear win-win for everybody. So as, <clears throat> as I said earlier, this aspect of the physical aspect of manufacturing competitiveness can be rather quickly strengthened using tried and tested market-based solutions. That is uh, PPP and other arrangements that are similar to it. So that's the second source, the industrial and logistics infrastructure, infrastructure as a source of competitiveness uh, uh, in, in, in boosting low-cost manufacturing. 
and the third is human capital it's 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 a it's a natural competitive advantage i think a lot has been said so what can, what more can i add but it is a key competitive advantage for india and it's going to be the size of its workforce and relatively low wages comparatively and globally um so it is it is it is i think the most important competitive advantage to consider it is evidently clear i think that this is going to be an important source of advantage for skill intensive service sectors as well and this includes my earlier reference to digital services which could be rendered remotely so that is based in india serviceable from anywhere and providing services globally so i think for that as well in even in the high skill uh, category i think uh, the size of the workforce is quite sizable um and i think it's a, it's a source of further competitive advantage for the high skill services sector so i think um these are the three major sources of competitive advantage that i would identify and i would like to add that in the post covid world um the competition for marginal investment is going to be quite acute uh this is this is predicted by several economists and and we we see that uh, happening that is a growing consensus that uh, investment is global investment flows are falling falling but the need for investment is increasing as the pre-existing problems in economies are further magnified by the crisis so we know that this competition is intensifying and existing sources of competitive advantage may not be fully adequate the winners in the near future so in the in the recovery from post covid-19 whenever that should that should begin are likely to be those types of economies and i hope india is one of them that can create new sources of competitive advantage through eliciting investor confidence and this happens when you offer predictable business operating environments low transaction costs that is better performance and ease of doing business for a simple rubric of thought and an open and transparent trade and investment policy regime so i think in addition to the three that i identify i would add these two as further areas in which india would like to or should uh, up its game especially in 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 relation to its competitors that is trade and investment policy and open policy regime and number 2 uh, offering predictable business environment for both domestic and foreign operators companies in india so i think these are my thoughts on the question of competitive advantage thank you so much this was a very detailed and well formulated response this has been a great discussion right from covering the three industries where we could witness an immediate impact that is food health and hygiene talking about the reforms in the financial services sector especially the public sector banks the decision factors for foreign investors and lastly i think you provided a very well articulated solution for manufacturing competitiveness for india and the path forward for improvement in the business environment we are wrapping up for today thank you so much it was great to have you on the show thank you very much mona thank you shreya um i really enjoyed the discussion the questions were excellent um and as i mentioned earlier if there are any follow on questions clarifications i can be reached at my email address and i'll be happy to respond if any of your audience should choose to contact me thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it stay tuned for another exciting episode on naturally curious stay safe have a great week